This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 20th, 2007. China Airlines Flight 120, a Boeing 737 with 165 people on board, is about to touch down at Naha Airport in Okinawa after a short flight from Taiwan. The airplane successfully lands without incident and taxis to the gate. The captain turns off the seatbelt sign and passengers get out of their seats eager to deplane. When going through their after-landing checklists, the pilots get a call from the ground crew. The plane is on fire. The number two engine has erupted in flames and the crew must quickly prepare the plane for evacuation before the entire plane is engulfed. What could cause a parked plane to catch fire? Is the flight seconds away from disaster? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Chris and Gus. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. And we're here with another episode. Before we get into the meat of it, as always, I want to remind everyone to please, please, please give us a follow on social media if you can at Black Box Down Pod. That's where we post supplemental images and uh, you can see stuff that maybe, you know, you're trying to picture mentally. This one's going to get a little, um, we have to do a lot of description about what happened here. So if you go check out social media, you'll be able to see very clearly what I'm talking about. Also, it just so happened since this incident happened while the plane was parked at a gate, there's a passenger video of it. Like someone who uh, oh. was in, in the airport pulled out their video camera and, uh, and filmed what was going on. So you can see exactly, you know, what's going on and we'll make sure to link to that as well. You'll be able to see that exactly all on social media. Yeah. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. Oh, YouTube. Oh, yeah. We have a YouTube channel, too. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, you little weirdo, uh, you can do that. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Do you? I think that's such a weird thing, but apparently a lot of people do it. So like I said, China Airlines Flight 120, the regularly scheduled passenger flight from Taiwan, Taoyuan Air, International Airport to Naha Airport in Okinawa, Japan. This is back on August 20th, 2007. So, you know, a while ago, but not like super distant in the past. Like people, mm-hmm. people still remember this. Although I guess, theoretically, someone who was born after this could be listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> which is a little weird. That's true. The captain of this flight was Yu Chin Ku, who was 47 years old, had 7,941 hours of flight time. And the first officer was Sung Tawei, who was 26 years old with 890 hours of flight time. Aircraft was fairly new as a five-year-old Boeing 737 with 13,664 hours. And there were six flight attendants and 157 passengers on board in total. Mm-hmm. So Flight 120 took off from Taiwan at about 9.23 a.m. Japan time and had a normal flight and landed in Okinawa at 10.27 a.m. So just, you know, a little over an hour flight real quick. And they were instructed to taxi to gate 41. By the way, in in this episode, if you hear me say spot 41, that's the same as gate 41. For some reason in the reports, this might be like a thing for specific to this airport or a thing specific to Japan. They refer to the gates as spots. So the report said they taxied to spot 41. But I checked the airport map. It was actually gate 41. That's the nomenclature we're going to use. But if you hear me say spot 41, that's what that means. Okay, that's weird. But go ahead. A little different. (laughs) So at 10.32 a.m., which is five minutes after they landed, the pilots started performing the engine shutdown procedures for both engines. You know, the plane lands, you know, they turn off the fasten seatbelt sign. The pilots are still going through checklists and stuff. They still got to, like, turn the plane off, right? Mm -hmm. So 45 seconds after they start this process, a ground crew member switched on the interphone on the plane's nose. Now, we've never talked about this before, I don't think, but commercial airplanes have points around the aircraft where ground crew can, like, they can plug in directly and call the cockpit and talk with the pilots. Oh, So 15 seconds later, at 10.33, several air traffic controllers in the tower saw black smoke coming from somewhere uh, on the apron. They couldn't Mm -hmm. see exactly where it was out of their direct line of sight. 
So, you know, they start going through like video monitors, like cameras that are around the airport. Yeah. And they try to see and they see that the fire's coming from this flight. It's coming from flight 120. And at the same time, ground maintenance engineer reported the fire to the captain on that interphone saying it was coming from the number two engine, which is the engine. Uh, if you're sitting in the plane, it's the engine on the right. So people on the ground, like you say they use that interphone, but like if ground maintenance did it, it wasn't in the plane. Right. They can see it externally. They say that the number two engine's on fire. So it's like the engine. you know. Yeah, but the interphone you're talking about, so... It's an interphone for a crew to talk to the pilots and stuff within the plane, but also outside the plane? No, it's a way for them to call from outside to inside. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just like a direct line in. Okay. Where is it located? Uh, it's at a few points around the plane. I don't know specifically about the 737, uh, but it's a couple, I'm going I'm to see if I can find an answer for you. I just didn't know there was a phone outside the plane. That's cool. Be like, hey, you're on fire. <laughs> hey, how's it going? I don't know. Not much. What's up with you? <laughs> I think you're on fire. So I don't know precisely where they are. Uh, there are a few points around the plane. The one that they were using in this particular example was probably the one near the, the nose. Mm -hmm. And there's like a little cover. They can pop the cover out. And on the inside, there's like a bunch of different connections and switches. So like they might be able to turn on the nose wheel light. Uh, they can jack into the interphone. They can hit a button to call huh. the pilot. There's like exterior power receptacles in case they need to plug in. Uh, those kinds of things, you know, just like utility, things that the ground crew yeah, might need while they're cool. working around the plane. Yeah, it's just, you know, utility. And one of the things that they add in there is this interphone and the call button to get the attention of the pilots. Cool. So, you know, once the captain hears, you know, the, the people are telling him that his plane, the number two engine's on fire, you know, he tries to look out the window and see to confirm for himself. And, you know, he yeah, he sees smoke and, and fire. So he commands the crew to prepare for evacuation. A controller in the tower also started to report the fire to the fire command room of the fire station the air traffic services, flight information officer, and to the air self-defense force base operations. So just letting all the emergency services know that there's a fire and they need to you know, do something about it. Mm -hmm. The number three right slide was deployed on the aircraft first, and then the one left and one right and three left slides were deployed and the passengers began to evacuate the airplane. So the three right slide would be on the right side, kind of in the back. Okay. Uh, one left and one right are up near the cockpit, and then three left is on the left side, kind of near the back. And the number two engine is located on the right? Correct. If you're sitting in the plane, it's to the right. Okay. You know, as a result of the fire, the APU fire extinguisher was pulled, and as a result, the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording just before 1035. You know, they're not sure exactly what the extent of the fire is, so they're just being yeah. careful. Two fire engines and a water truck were headed on their way to the plane, but they had trouble getting a hold of a controller and they were stopped on the ground because there was another taxiing airplane in their way. At 1036, the first officer began his escape through the right-hand side of the window of the cockpit using an evacuation assist rope. And we've never talked about this before. I was about to say, I didn't know they could do that. In some 737s, there's a rope in the cockpit where if they can't get out the door and you know exit the plane like normal, they open up a window and there's this rope they can let out that they you know toss out the window and then... They squeeze out the window and climb down the rope to get down to the ground. That's some Indiana Jones stuff. <laughs> it, it is. So, uh, you know, the, the first officer is Indiana Jonesing it, uh, climbing down <laughs> the rope out the cockpit. However, as he's doing that, you know, he's like starting to climb out. He's outside the, the airplane on the rope. There was an explosion in the right wing. Whoa. Uh, so the, the force of the blast knocks him off of the rope uh, and he falls to the ground. Oh, I was about to say that's some real Indiana, but I guess he fell. He fell, yeah. He, he, he was actually okay. So, yeah. Okay. Was, it is like something out of a movie. It's like a long fall, and then you get up, and you're fine. Yeah. Uh, the captain also starts to evacuate via the same rope and, uh, you know, gets out. Uh, I believe, actually, he jumps for it. Like, he starts using the rope, and he sees the explosion, the fire, and he just, like, lets go oh. and falls to the ground. But he's also okay. 
Around this time, it's noted the fire engine attempted to make radio contact with the tower again, but still got no response. Uh, then just before 1037, there was a second explosion that was located either under the right wing or around the bottom of the fuselage. About 17 seconds later, there was a third explosion around the bottom of the aircraft. Then the tower attempted to make contact with the fire engines, but there was no response either. Oh. They just kept missing each other. A fire engine that came from a different location than the other fire engines arrived at the aircraft and started spraying foam about eight seconds after the third explosion. At 10.38 and 26 seconds, the fuselage then bent at the wings and the tail fell to the ground. So it's like it's getting a little melty, you know, all the fires. Just yeah, fell, yeah. It's all kind of drooping and falling apart. And everyone's out at this point? Yeah, they actually evacuated very quickly. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I should clarify. Everyone evacuated fine. There were a couple of minor injuries, uh, nothing serious. I think a couple of people were taken to the hospital but were released uh, fairly quickly. Good. The original fire engine that was trying to contact the tower then finally arrived and started spraying foam as well. About 10 seconds before 1040, the right wing then fell to the ground. Over the next several minutes, more fire engines arrived, and at 1137, all the firefighting operations were completed. So it's about an hour to finally put everything out 100%. The aircraft was destroyed by the fire and explosions, but like I said, everyone made it out okay. There were no fatalities, just a couple of super minor injuries. So, I mean, this is kind of a, a scary incident in that they landed, Everything was fine. Like <laughs> they were at the gate. The fasten seatbelt sign mm -hmm. was off. You know, people, it's like that part of the flight where everyone stands up. And you're like, oh my God, mm -hmm. it's just forever to get out of the plane. You think that at this point you're safe, that everything should be okay. Yeah. You've gone through all the dangerous stuff. You're on the ground, you know, just a couple of minutes away from getting off the plane. And, you know, then this fire breaks out. So, you know, yeah. what happens? Well, how is this possible? They're, they're not in the air. They're shutting everything down. How can a fire just seemingly spontaneously start? Yeah. I mean, is it something about like shutting the engines off that did it or like powering down? Right. That seems like, like if you're thinking about it, you're like, what are, what's going on? That's the only thing that the pilots are doing at this time. They're going through an engine shutdown procedure, but why would that start a fire? That doesn't make yeah. sense. I will say, we know, and we've talked about this before, but I kind of want to reemphasize this. The types of engines that this plane has, they're CFM 56 engines. When they're flying, you know, when they're giving their, their peak output during a flight, the internal temperature on these engines is over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which, for reference, is hotter than molten lava. Huh. So these engines get super, super hot, which is kind of a, I don't know, like a scary thing to think about. Like you've talked about ovens before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the temperature of a lava flow is usually about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's like liquid rock. Jesus. And, you know, that's what it's pushing you through the sky. And that's just normal. <laughs> that's, and that's under normal circumstances. That's, hey, everything's great. <laughs> everything's fine. You're flying. Yeah. So the investigation was carried out by the Aircraft and Railway Accidents Investigation Commission of Japan. The commission was told by the crew that during the pre-flight check, during the flight, and after landing, there were no fire alarms or warnings that something was off. Everything was normal up until the fire was reported by the ground crew member. There were some statements from a bus driver on the ramp and some mechanics that they noticed fuel leaking out of the right side of the aircraft as it was taxiing and as it was parking on spot 41. That's obviously something's wrong. So the commission mm -hmm. conducted an inspection of the right wing and they found a punctured hole in the slats track can. So we're going to have to try to explain this here. So we've talked about the slats before. The slats are like the part of the wing that comes off the leading edge off the front part of the wing to help generate more lift during landing. So, you know, when a plane comes in to land, if you look out at the wing, you might see the flaps extend on the rear of the wing, and you might see the slats extend on the front leading edge of the wing. And then, you know, after the plane lands, the slats and the flaps all retract back into the wing. So the slat, obviously, you see, comes out and goes back in. So when it's in the wing, where does it go? That's what the track can is. It's like a little 
hollowed out portion of the wing where the slat sits in when it's inside the wing and then it comes out and it goes back into the track can. Okay. So the track can housed the inboard main track of the number five slat on the right wing leading edge and it protrudes inside the fuel tank from the wing forward spar. So if you think about where this track can is, it goes into the fuel tank because the fuel tanks are in the wings. So it's like a little carved out section in the fuel tank where the slat comes back into. Okay. And what happened was they found a puncture hole on the bottom of the track can, which extended from about 60 millimeters to 100 millimeters, which is 2.3 inches to 3.9 inches. And that was from the aft end of the track can. And it showed signs of being pushed from the inside. So basically, they found a hole in the track can. It looks like something got pushed from inside the track can into the fuel tank. You know, let's say you punch your finger through a piece of paper. You can tell uh-huh. which direction it was based on how yeah. the, the paper deforms. Same thing here, but it's metal. They can see so, like the metal is folding to inside the fuel tank. So something punctured from the track can into the fuel tank. Like wedged in there that whenever the slats folded in, it goes and like squished it in. Right. Which that shouldn't happen. There shouldn't be yeah. anything in there. So the track can itself was made of aluminum alloy and it measures 220 millimeters in length. 80 millimeters in height and 65 millimeters in width, which is 8.7 inches long, 3.1 inches high, and 2.6 inches wide. The puncture hole included gashes that measured 41 millimeters in length and 23 millimeters in width. They can actually see what punctured the slat can was still uh-huh. sitting there. So they could see exactly what it was. And it was a piece of hardware that was headed by a nut that was protruded through the puncture hole towards the inside of the fuel tank. So now they've got this little piece of metal, this little piece of hardware, and they're like, one, what is this? Two, what is this doing here? And why is it puncturing the fuel tank? Is this like a maintenance thing that someone left on on accident or something? Oh, look at you, Chris. You, you, might, you might have a career change in your future, huh? <laughs> so they inspect the inside of the track can using a boroscope, which is like, what is it, like a little camera on a long wiggly uh-huh. piece of uh it's what you imagine someone getting like either like a endoscopy or a colonoscopy <laughs> with like yeah it's like <laughs> a bendy kind of camera okay so they use this boroscope they insert it from the slat side to look around and the inspection revealed that the hardware protruding toward the inside of the fuel tank was a downstop assembly i'll explain what the downstop assembly is in a second a downstop assembly has a bolt a washer a downstop stop location sleeve and nut so what the downstop assembly does is it sits on the inside of the track. It's normally supposed to be inside the track can. And mm-hmm. when the slats go out forward, the downstop assembly is what stops the slats. It's what lets the slat know it's reached its final location so that it doesn't go all the way and fall out of the wing. Mm-hmm. So it's like a nut, a bolt, a washer, and uh, you know, it's supposed to just stop the slat, keep it in place, and then retract. So this is a piece that should be attached to the slats, but obviously it's come loose and now it's punctured through the fuel tank. This downstop that they found, it was found lying inside the track can at a place close to the puncture hole, but not in contact with the bottom surface of the main track. So did someone take it off and not put it back on? Right. Is that what happened? I mean, that's the question you start asking. Like, well, why is this here? Why, why is it not where it's supposed to be? Like, it's close to where it should be, but... It's obviously not in the right place. Yeah. So the big question at this point that I would ask is, is this the downstop for this slat? Did it come loose? Or is this another downstop that's just in here for some reason, right? Oh, like someone was replacing it or swapping it out or something and then set it down and then left it in the plane. Right. That's the question I would be wondering at this time. So they go ahead and remove the slat, right? Because they want to inspect it and see, you know, what's going on. And when they're removing it, they find a loose washer, 
just lying below the opening in the front end of the wing forward spar, like where the track goes. So now it's like, well, what's going on? There's this loose washer (laughs) sitting here. So during recovery of the downstop assembly and the downstop, which had been lying inside the track can, the stop location came off the bolt and fell inside the track can and a loose piece of the track can near the puncture hole became detached from the track can. So now it's apparent to them that this was the downstop for this slat and it just seemingly came off. It just seemingly fell loose from where it should be, was in the can, and then got punctured through the fuel tank. Or it just came off or someone took it off. Yeah, maybe. So now the question is, all right, <laughs> what, what's the deal? It's like a Seinfeld thing, right? <laughs> what's the deal with this downstop? <laughs> I do not want to see a Seinfeld episode where he's like a, an NTSB investigator. The the, uh, <laughs> why, why is it in the can? Who put it in the can? <laughs> The slat goes in the can. All right, enough of our terrible Seinfeld impressions. We don't want to subject listeners to that. It's hot in Texas. Yes, I know, still. So it's hard to stay hydrated, but making hydration a priority really helps me feel healthier and function better on just a day-to-day basis. And that's where liquid IV is really helpful. One stick of liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates faster than water alone. It's really easy to make it part of your routine every day. Uh, In my case, I like to do it in the morning, maybe just after a shower. Just remember, you're going to get a glass of water anyway. Just throw some liquid IV in there. It really helps. Liquid IV contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana, made with clean ingredients, non-GMO, vegan, and free of gluten, dairy, and soy. It uses cellular transport technology to hydrate you faster, providing the optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium, which deliver water and nutrients into the bloodstream. So grab your liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com. Use code BLACKBOX down at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you get better hydration today using promo code BLACKBOX down at liquidiv.com. Let's talk about your online shopping habit because if you aren't using Honey, you're doing it wrong. You know Honey, the online shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and saves you money all for free. Honey applies the best codes it finds right to your cart. It's super easy to use. You just add it as a browser extension. Then when you check out online, Honey pops down. All you do is click apply coupons and whatever it finds, it auto applies it to your cart. Honey has saved its 17 million members over $2 billion. That's a huge number. I know I use it all the time. Recently, I was buying a pair of jeans. Uh, didn't even think about it. And when I was going through the checkout process, it just popped down and instantly saved me money without you really having to, I guess I clicked something. So with really minimal effort. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free, installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you're doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. I'd never recommend something I don't use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. What's the first rule of Fight Camp? It's tell everyone about Fight Camp. Fight Camp brings the boxing and kickboxing gym to you with full body workouts that you'll actually enjoy and actually do. Fight Camp is for everyone from kids to adult beginners to experienced boxers. They got multiple learning tracks on an app that teaches you boxing skills plus training workouts. Uh, You'll get to learn from experienced fighters ranging from MMA pros to kickboxing champions. Fight Camp comes with all the gear necessary to box at home, including a freestanding punching bag, boxing gloves, and quick hand wraps. I'll admit, I was intimidated. I thought this was going to be super complicated. I don't know why, but I was really hung up on the whole hand wrap thing. I thought I was going to do it wrong. But the quick hand wraps they give you are so easy to use. It's I, I think it's impossible to do wrong. I don't know if they say that, but I would say it. It's so easy to set up, so easy to get going. Super great. The app really teaches you everything you need to know. You can pay for your Fight Camp over 24 months for less than the cost of a boxing gym, and you get it right away. Plus, Fight Camp offers free shipping with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. To get free shipping on Fight Camp, go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. Join fightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. 
Before we continue, I uh, just want to let you know we're conducting a survey to gather some information about your listening habits for the show. If you enjoy the content, stuff like that, hopefully you do. Super fast, takes less than five minutes. It'll really help us out a lot. You can find a link to the survey in the description. So going back to what you said earlier, now you know they're going to look at the maintenance records. What was happening with this plane? Did anything go on? Was there any maintenance performed recently? And they look, and the aircraft had undergone scheduled maintenance at the airline's base in Taiwan from July 6th to July 13th, 2007, which is just a little over a month before this incident. But that's a long time ago. That is a long time. So what's going on, right? Was this loose the whole time? Did it just come loose? Yeah. But the next step is, well, let's go talk to the maintenance people, right? Let's dig into the maintenance. What was going on at this time? So during this maintenance time, work was performed to prevent the loosening of the nut on the downstop assembly because there was an engineering order that was prepared based on a service letter. So now the red flags are going off, right? It's like, oh, when this aircraft was in for maintenance, they worked on this specific part. Mm. The engineering order was only issued for the inboard main track of the number five slat. So exactly this part had maintenance performed on it. And the maintenance record showed no other operations had been carried out on this particular downstop assembly prior to the operation just mentioned. (laughs) So now it's like, okay, it's it's becoming apparent. We don't know 100%, but things are really leading to one conclusion here. Mm -hmm. So the maintenance engineer who worked on this detached the slat track forward end to allow the main tracks to move freely. The engineer could then align the downstop assembly with the access hole. The job only required the replacement of the nut on the downstop assembly. So the engineer removed the nut while having the bolt held by an assistant. And this is, it's actually kind of a tricky maintenance thing that they're doing. They can't see the downstop because they're under the wing, you know, on a ladder. So if they're having to reach up over their head into a part of the wing where they can't see, then with with just the feel, they're holding it in place. And one, you know, one engineer's holding the downstop and the other one's, you know, grabbing onto the nut and loosening it. And that's all they're doing is just loosening it? They were concerned that that nut might come loose. So the maintenance that they had to do was they had to loosen the nut, apply almost like a glue, like a fastener to make sure the nut doesn't come loose and then reattach the nut. Okay. So like I said, he removed the nut while having the bolt head held by an assistant. And they coated the bolt and a new nut with a thread locking compound, which is the glue, like I said. Then the engineer installed the nut and tightened it with a torque wrench with a torque of 70 pounds. So he didn't remove the entire downstop assembly. He just, you know, reached up there, took the nut off, you know, performed the maintenance and then screwed it back on. And like I said, they couldn't see. They were reaching up above their head. There was no way for them to look in there. So they're just kind of feeling around and doing it. Seems like a really straightforward and simple job. Take the nut off, put some glue on it, put the nut back on. Mm-hmm. But the maintenance engineer did not turn his attention to the washer, nor was he aware whether any components had not been properly installed at the time he completed the job. So since they can't see, it's very possible that washer fell. Remember I said there was a loose washer that they found uh-huh. as well? Since they're reaching up above their head and doing all this, it's possible he didn't know there was a washer on there and the washer just kind of fell off. He did not report to the supervisor that the front bolt of the slat track needed to be detached during the maintenance work, And he did not remember whether or not there were any loose parts or clearance after finishing the job. It's also noted that the engineer had lunch during the span of time it took to complete the engineering order. So he starts the job, then stops to eat lunch, and then goes back to finishing the job. Then after completion, the supervisor stamped and signed the engineering order job card. So it's not 100% certain, aha, you know, this is exactly what happened. But it's seeming more and more suspicious. But why would a missing washer caused this to happen. Well, it turns out the diameter of the nut is 0.408 inches, which is 10.36 millimeters. And the inside diameter of the nut side downstop 
was 0.414 inches, which is 10.51 millimeters. So that's a difference of what? Six thousandths of an inch or 0.05 millimeters. Okay. So and I'm going to explain why that's significant here in a second. So when the engineer was replacing the parts, the washer that sits between the nut and the downstop fell off and the new nut was put on without the washer. So because of that slight difference in size, this allowed the downstop to slide off the bolt over the nut and fall into the track can. So the only thing holding it in place and keeping it from falling out was that washer. The, wait. Because the nut was slightly smaller than the hole it was installed on. So because of that, because there was no washer there to keep it in place, the entire downstop just fell out through the hole it's attached in and was just rattling around loose in the track can. The entire downstop thing? Yeah, with like the nut, the bolt, the entire assembly was just kind of loose. And that's what they found in the track can. Because the, the washer fell off. Right, because the, the washer thing... fell off. That was the only thing holding it in place. So washer. A washer. Dude, think about how crazy that is. A $70 million airplane burned up and melted. 165 people, you know, were panicked and fearing for their lives, all because a washer fell off when it, uh, maintenance was being performed. A washer. That's I know, nuts. right? It's, it, no, it's no, a washer. Wait, it's bolts. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's, it's, it's crazy to think about. It's like such a small part. Who knows? It's like probably like a 20 cent washer. Oh, took down a bet at like what? How many? 20 million plane? <laughs> $70 million plane. $70 million plane. So now they have a pretty clear understanding of what happened, what led this downstop to fall, why this downstop punctured the can. But I guess the last question you want to ask yourself, or maybe not the last, but the next question you ask yourself is, why did the fire not start until they got to the gate? So it's speculated that the puncture happened when they landed and they retracted their slats. That's the moment when finally the downstop punctured the fuel tank. So when that happened, the fuel was being blown aft by the blast of the fan from the engines because the engine was on. And so it was, you know, blowing. So the fuel was being blown back. But when the engine stopped, it's highly probable the leaking fuel started splashing down. It wasn't being blown back anymore and was being splashed onto the exhaust pipe of the engine and pulled onto the surface of the apron. Oh. So the fuel that had pulled onto the apron surface spread over the surface to the left and after the aircraft because, you know, of wind and because of the apron was a little sloped. So then because the fuel came into contact with that high temperature, it ignited. So was it, they were saying the hole might have been there for a while, like since the plane took off? Mm, it, I think it's impossible to say, man, I guess I hadn't considered that until you asked right now. In my mind, the way it had happened was when they retracted the slats after landing, in my mind, that's when it most likely punctured the fuel tank. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say it probably didn't happen on takeoff because as we've discussed in other incidents, they would have noticed that fuel burn was not normal, that they were leaking fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to say it's most likely was not happening in flight. It most likely happened after they landed and retracted their slats. I was curious, you know, you're asking about this. I was curious about fuel consumption. So I looked it up. The fuel pumps in this kind of 737, they pump 200 gallons of fuel per hour to each engine. That's a lot of fuel. A lot of fuel. The report also touched on radio communications between the fire engines and the tower. Because obviously, like I said, they kept missing each other. There was miscommunication. There was delay in getting the fire engines out there. It turns out the type of radio they were using to communicate has a characteristic where it could take up to several seconds before the connection sequence is completed after the transmission button is pressed. So it's like when you use a walkie-talkie and, you know, you hold down the button, then the other person can't talk. Except mm -hmm. due to a quirk in this radio, the radio believed that the button was still pressed for a few seconds even after you let go of it. So 
they were kind of like blocking each other out inadvertently. Okay. So it is considered highly probable that this accident occurred through the following causal chain. When the aircraft retracted the slats after landing at Naha Airport, the track can that housed the inboard main track of the number five slat on the right wing was punctured, creating a hole. Fuel leaked out through the hole, reaching the outside of the wing. A fire started when the leaked fuel came into contact with high temperature areas on the right engine after the aircraft stopped in its assigned spot and the aircraft burned out after several explosions. With regard to the cause of the puncture in the track can, it is certain that the downstop assembly having detached from the aft end of the above-mentioned inboard main track fell off into the track can, and when the slat was retracted, the assembly was pressed by the track against the track can and punctured it. With regard to the cause of the detachment of the downstop assembly, it is considered highly probable that during the maintenance works for preventing the nut from loosening, which the airline carried out on the downstop assembly about one and a half months prior to the accident, based on the service letter from the manufacturer of the aircraft, it was a long sentence, <laughs> the washer on the nut side of the assembly fell off, following which the downstop on the nut side of the assembly fell off, and then the downstop assembly eventually fell off the track. It is considered highly probable that a factor contributing to the detachment of the downstop assembly was the design of the downstop assembly, which was unable to prevent the assembly from falling off if the washer is not installed. With regard to the detachment of the washer, it is considered probable that the following factors contributed to this. Despite the fact that nut was in a location difficult to access during the maintenance works, neither the manufacturer of the aircraft nor the company had paid sufficient attention to this when preparing the service letter and engineering order job card respectively. Also, neither the maintenance operator nor the job supervisor reported the difficulty of the job to the one who had ordered the job. So it just seems like, hey, everyone was kind of ignorant of the fact that this washer was holding everything together. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't think that the plane would fall apart without a washer. Well, yeah, you wouldn't think a washer would be responsible for securing this, right? Like a washer, yeah. in my mind, is just for like creating a space between the nut and whatever you're attaching to. But I mean... That's what I know. I don't make planes. Mm -hmm. So the Japan Transportation Safety Board recommends the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States of America to supervise the Boeing company, the manufacturer of the aircraft, to take the following actions. When preparing maintenance job instructions for airlines such as service letters and bulletins, the scopes of jobs should be clearly defined and the working conditions and environments, including accessibilities to the job area, should be appropriately evaluated in order to prevent maintenance errors. So just do a better job describing exactly what the maintenance involves and the potential problems that could be faced. The Japan Transport Safety Board recommends the Civil Aeronautics Administration of Taiwan to supervise China Airlines to take the following actions. When planning and implementing maintenance jobs, the scopes of jobs should be fully ascertained and the working conditions and environments should be appropriately evaluated and the countermeasures to prevent maintenance errors, including the actions taken in 2009 against the recurrence of this accident, should be steadfastly implemented and enhanced. So, um, of course, there were actions taken as a result of all of this. Following this accident, the Boeing company, as the manufacturer of this aircraft, made uh -huh. a change to the design of the downstop assembly and started applying the newly designed downstop assembly to its a new production aircraft of the applicable models from August 2008. So obviously they were like, oh, this is, this is a problem. We need uh -huh. to redesign this downstop to make sure that this doesn't potentially happen again. Yeah. Uh -huh. As measures for those aircraft already in service, Boeing released a service bulletin on December 15, 2008, that provides operators with instructions to replace the existing downstop hardware with the new design hardware, which is what you want to hear. It's like, hey, let's put the new downstops in and get rid of these old ones that might fall out. Intending to prevent leaking fuel from dropping onto the engine fan nozzle, Boeing issued a service bulletin on November 13, 2008, instructing modification to operators 
so as to secure a drain path for leaking fuel in the area, keeping away from engine fan nozzle area. So kind of redo some designs so that if fuel does leak or drip, it kind of routes it away from uh, the engine fan. Which makes sense. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like, hey, this shouldn't happen, but just in case, let's be safe. Following this accident in February and March 2009, operator revised definitions of job order document, maintenance manual, and so forth as follows. The job order improvement, which is introduction of support system for job sites and revision of maintenance manuals. And there's also China Airlines developed three feedback systems for the purpose of reporting difficulties or problems on the job order. Those three systems are supplementary worksheet procedure, technical support for maintenance and events, and system engineer technical support procedure. So again, just better documentation, better supports, better oversight for any maintenance. Mm -hmm. On March 7th, 2008, the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States of America issued a revision to the design criteria, which includes the requirement for installation of a discrete power source that is capable of supplying power to the CVR and cockpit area microphone for 10 minutes after the generator power is lost, and also for an arrangement whereby the discrete power source automatically takes over when the normal power source is interrupted. Because remember, like I said, they pulled the uh, fire extinguisher on the APU, which cut out the cockpit voice recorder. So, you know, they went ahead and decided that, hey, let's have a battery backup so that if the electrical system goes out and loses power, we still get another 10 minutes of uh, cockpit voice recorder. Oh, yeah. And that it cuts over automatically. That They don't have to do anything to make sure yeah. that it turns on. I mean, that seems... I'm surprised they haven't done that before then. The idea of just a battery backup. Yeah, I guess they assumed that, you know, the APU would be running and be able to supply electrical power. But, you know, we've covered enough incidents where stuff happens. It's like, man, you really wish that there had been a little more power for the CVR. Mm -hmm. So this revision requires that all turbine engine aircraft manufactured on or after April 7th, 2010 for operation by U.S. airlines meet this new design criteria. So, I mean, that's been a little over 11 years now. On November 18th, 2008, the Civil Aviation Bureau of Japan revised the airworthiness standards, imposing an obligation just like the requirement by the revision of the FAA design criteria on those aircraft newly applying for type certification. However, it is considered necessary to study on the establishment of new rules to deal with those aircraft that will be manufactured under already granted type certification for operation by Japanese airlines. So Japan's like, hey, we're going to adopt that too, but we need to figure out there's so much bureaucracy and red tape all the time with this stuff. So they're still figuring out how to you know, retroactively fit it into airplanes that are already granted certification. Yeah. So in the aftermath of all this, China Airlines stated they would compensate passengers 1,000 new Taiwan dollars for every kilogram of luggage lost. And a kilogram, of course, like 2.2 pounds. For a maximum of 20,000 new Taiwan dollars for checked-in pieces of luggage and another 20,000 new Taiwan dollars maximum for carry-on luggage. So it's based off the weight? Not yeah, it's, it's based off the weight. That's, but how did they know what the weight was? I assume it's an insurance actuary table where they calculate the average. Trust me, insurance has actuary tables for everything. And I'm sure they know the approximate value of, you know, by weight yeah. of luggage. So just for reference, 1,000 new Taiwan dollars is about 36 US dollars today. So for every 2.2 pounds, you got $36 for a maximum of... 20,000 new Taiwan dollars, which is about $721 today. So I'd be mad if I had a laptop or any computer equipment, but I yeah. guess, I mean, $36 for 2.2 pounds. Like, I'm trying to think about like how much my clothes weigh and how much, like, I don't know. I feel like maybe that's still a little bit. It of, seems low because it also seems low. There's right, also yeah. the inconvenience of like buying all your stuff and going through the process of like dealing with insurance. And also, you were like, in a plane fire. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just it seems a little maybe. I mean, that's also today dollars. I don't know what it was, you know, adjusted for inflation back then. Yeah, but 2007 is that what we said? Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, that's not that far. <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like they should be giving them like a little bonus, you know, like, hey, you lost all your stuff. I don't know. It's the inconvenience factor and drama of it all. I'm trying to see if I can find historic data on the exchange rate for the new Taiwan dollar. The furthest back I can go is 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was about 20. Well, currently, I should say it's about one US dollar is about 27 new Taiwan dollars and 74 cents. 10 years ago, it was 29.20. So it's roughly the same, maybe a 10% difference. So yeah, it, has, it really hasn't changed that much in the grand scheme of things. So due to the accident on August 25th, the FAA ordered emergency inspections of wing leading edge slat tracks on all next generation Boeing 737 aircraft. The emergency airworthiness directive from the FAA requires operators to inspect the slat track downstop to check for missing parts, ensure proper installation, and check the inside of the slat can for foreign object debris and damage. The directive requires operators to inspect within 24 days and every 3,000 flight cycles thereafter. Following feedback from completed inspections, revealing loose parts in several other aircraft and one with a damaged slat can, the FAA issued a new emergency airworthiness directive on August 28th. Airlines were then required to perform the inspection on next-generation Boeing 737 aircraft within 10 days instead of 24. In addition, the airworthiness directive required a one-time torquing of the nut and bolt in the downstop assembly for the slat track within 24 days. So the FAA issues a directive saying, hey, you know, all U.S. airlines, you need to inspect these slat cans and make sure it hasn't happened to any more planes. And during the inspection, they find loose parts in other planes and they find a damaged slat can. In fact, they find... 21 planes in the U.S. were found what? to have that same missing washer issue. What? This was, at the time, a really widespread issue. 21 planes? For reference, the seven, this plane, the 737, this is a really popular plane. It's so popular that it's estimated one takes off somewhere in the world every three to four seconds. But still, there were 21 planes in the U.S. that were found to have this same missing washer issue. Yeah. And that same issue could have happened during takeoff, right? So, you know, as we've mentioned before, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pilot and I've definitely never flown a 737. So I can't speak to that with any real authority. But from what I can tell, it seems like they can be used during takeoff. They're definitely used during landing. So I want to say yes with an asterisk. Uh, they can be used during takeoff, but they might not necessarily be used during takeoff. Okay. But yeah, this was a, definitely a serious concern because obviously you see what can happen worst case scenario here. But, I mean, that's it. That's China Airlines 120. Super interesting. I mean, I, I think this is one of the more interesting episodes we've done just because everything goes wrong after the plane is parked. It's, like, it's, it's wild to me uh, how lucky everyone is that this wasn't worse. You know, the plane was destroyed, but, you know, there's insurance for that. You can replace a plane. Uh, luckily, everyone got out safely. They didn't quite get the proper payment for their luggage, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, they, they, they might have gotten a little ripped off on that side, but I'm sure everyone was just happy to be yeah, safe, yeah. you know, and to, to not be injured. You can replace, you know, all your luggage and whatever, whatever junk you have in there. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, follow us on social media. I'll post an image of what the downstop assembly looks like, like wh what they call like an exploded view where everything's taken apart. So you can see how it all fits together and on the main track. And you can see the washer that's missing that allows for, you know, everything to fall apart. That's a rather pointed name for, uh, given that this podcast, the exploded. The exploded. Yeah, I was like, I, 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 that's how I know these referred to. I was like, I don't know if I should use that term, but that's how I know them. Uh, I'll dig up that video that someone took of the incident. We'll show you, you know, the interphone jacks, the evacuation rope. That's a lot of stuff. 
So yeah, give us a follow uh, at Black Box Down Pod. Like Chris said, we're on tons of social media. And one last thing before we go, before we wrap up, I know we're asking you a lot of things here. I just want to let you know that we're actually curious about you. We want to find out more about you, the listener. We're going to conduct a survey to gather data, you know, about your listening habits for the show, how much you enjoy the content, stuff like that. Super fast, just takes a couple of minutes. It would really help us a lot. Find the link to the survey in the description. Please, please, please take it if you can. If you got just a couple of minutes to spare, we would, it really does wonders for us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode. Thanks. Thanks.